book of Haggai. Uh, hit Matthew and go left, two or three books, and you'll be in Haggai. It's where we're studying here uh, this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Haggai chapter 2. We'll begin by reading the first three verses. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? Now, we remember the book of Haggai is written to uh, servants of the Lord, um, to those who are ministers, and every Christian is a minister. Every one of us is called um, to accomplish something uh, that he wants to through our lives in, this, uh, in our little moment in, in human history. And so it applies to all of us, not just when we think about ministry pastors or uh, evangelists or missionaries or something like that. And we remember that in studying chapter 1, that following the, the fall of the Babylonian Empire, they were conquered by the Medo-Persians, and there was a Mede by the name of Darius uh, the Mede, and one of the truly uh, great... Uh, uh, world-ruling emperors of the ancient world. Uh, they were pretty rare, pretty bloodthirsty lot, and not a very noble uh, group of people. And, uh, and he was uh, far better than most. And he allowed the Jewish people to return back to the land uh, with the intent that they would rebuild uh, the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. 42,000 Jews leave uh, the, the Babylonian area, now the Medo-Persian Empire, head back to Jerusalem for the in, uh, sole and intent purpose of rebuilding the temple. They're led by Zerubbabel, who is the governor, and then also by Joshua, the high priest. And they come, and when they come uh, to the land, uh, they begin to lay the foundation and they accomplish that. They also accomplish beginning some of the sacrifices. And then the Samaritans who occupied the land uh, uh, opposed them. Part Jew, part uh, Gentile opposed them, brought the work to a screeching halt. And, and so it remained uh, uh, undealt with or the temple uh, neglected for some 16 years and uh, it still lies in ruins. There's only a foundation that is, ha, has been uh, laid. And at this point, the Jews are now have completely forgotten what they've been called back into the land to do, rebuild the temple. They're building their homes. They're farming. They're getting established uh, in, in the land. And so uh, clearly this is a spiritual apathy on their part. Uh, they're neglecting now what God had called them to do. So God sends them the uh, prophetic alarm clock in the form of the person of Haggai who calls on them to complete the, the, the single great thing that they had returned to the land to accomplish, and that was uh, to uh, rebuild the temple. And the Lord speaks in, in the, the book of Haggai four messages that are designed to wake them up to finish uh, that task. 
Um, the rebuilding of the temple was threatened by uh, two principal excuses, or maybe it would be better to say uh, two principal attitudes on the part of the people uh, that threatened them uh, the, the rebuilding of the, of the temple as was intended. And last time we saw the first one uh, in verse 5 of chapter 1, uh, they declared that the time is not uh, come, the time that the Lord's house should be built, and so this isn't the time to rebuild the temple. And, uh, and God rejected their excuse for delay in noting that they seem to have found time to make a priority of building their own houses that were uh, upgrades from a normal house. There was paneled uh, walls on the inside and so forth. And and he confronted them with their hypocrisy on it. Uh, you determined that your houses needed to be built, and you built them. The reason you haven't built the temple is it, it is not a priority uh, to you. That is, uh, uh, that's the, the issue. And thankfully, they, they listened to uh, the, the message of Haggai, Zerubbabel, Joshua, the people. Now they began to rebuild the temple, and that brings us here. Uh, to uh, uh, chapter 2 and, uh, and very soon as they st start to rebuild the temple and there's a lot of rubble and it's, it's not easy work a lot of manual uh, labor and then a second attitude among the people uh, rises up to jeopardize the project and, uh, and, and that second attitude or excuse is uh, in verse 3 what difference will uh, what God has called us to do in rebuilding uh, the uh, temple. What, is, what uh, difference is it going to make? It will never compare to the original temple uh, that's, that Solomon uh, built. And so that's, that's the discouragement that comes upon them. The prophecy, we're given the date of the prophecy there in verse 1. And when you compare it to uh, the date of the previous prophecy that began chapter 1, uh, and, and, the, uh, and the end of, of chapter 1 here, rather uh, uh, about a month has gone by since the people have uh, resumed rebuilding the temple. And so they've begun to do this work. They have a discouragement that's in their heart that they're not verbalizing, but God knows that it's there. And so He has an encouragement uh, uh, for them. And so uh, the, all of the hard physical labor that was involved in in uh, clearing even the ground to uh, continue to rebuild the temple. So Zerubbabel the governor, uh, Joshua the high uh, priest, the people all involved in this endeavor. Now, uh, outwardly, the temple that they were building, and this was a discouragement to them, it couldn't compare, and they knew it, it couldn't compare to the magnificence of Solomon's temple. Uh, the former temple that Haggai is mentioning here. In terms of just physical beauty, uh, the glory of the materials that were uh, uh, used, uh, and because what they were building, what God had called them to do, uh, couldn't compare to what Solomon built in the form of, of the temple. It was a great discouragement to those who had previously seen the glory of Solomon's temple and then saw what they were producing out of the ground here at the time of, of Haggai. And so the older workers had seen the old temple and, uh, and uh, certainly internalized, maybe even spoke kind of wistfully uh, about the glory of that temple. 
And uh, this temple that they were building, it seemed as if it was uh, nothing by comparison. And, and in verse 3, there's a, the key phrases uh, God uses. How do you, uh, in your eyes, that's a very important phrase to notice, and then nothing again. What difference will what God has called us to do uh, here uh, make in the rebuilding of the temple? It'll never compare to the temple that Solomon built. Now, uh, discouragement is a reality for everyone in our Christian service. And there's no one who escapes that. Um, nobody escapes it, certainly, entirely. And uh, uh, discouragement in our service to the Lord is a great, great danger to our longevity in Christian ministry. Um, I don't know how many people that when you got saved and... Uh, the group of men and women that got saved around the same time in the church and all of those kind of things, and you look back five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, and how many of them are still serving the Lord. Uh, and, and that number can dwindle down to, to a, a, a very small number of people that continue all the way through their life in a Christian life of service, being faithful to what God has called them to do. And one of the great enemies of that continuing uh, is this thing called discouragement. There's an old story, some of you have heard it, and some of you have heard it 20 times. And, uh, but everybody has a right to hear it once. But there's an old story that, that captures this well. And, it, and the story is that uh, it, it was advertised that the devil was going to put all of his tools up for sale. And on the date of the sale, all the tools were put on display, and each of them were marked with a, a sales price. And, and there were a, a, a treacherous lot of, of implements. There was hatred, envy, jealousy, deceit, lying, pride, and so on. And then laid apart from all of these was a harmless-looking tool that was very, very well-worn and priced very high. And uh, somebody asked, uh, one of the purchasers pointed to it and said, what's the name of this tool? And the devil said, uh, that's discouragement. And he said, well, why have you priced it so high? And the devil said, because it's more useful to me than the others. I can pry open and get inside a man's heart with that when I cannot get near him with the other tools. It's badly worn because I use it on almost everyone since so few people know it belongs to me. And, uh, and it is very, very true of the danger, the threat of discouragement to us in our, our Christian service. We look at what we're doing and it is nothing in our eyes. Uh, it looks like it's making not a dent in terms of the need of, of the world, not making any difference whether if I continued or I stopped. Why in the world am I uh, uh, doing uh, this? And we work so hard and hard and hard, and it looks like nothing is happening. What good is this? Not making any difference. Wouldn't make any difference if I quit or I continue, and so I think I'll just quit. I remember talking a few years ago uh, with a man that God had called to do a particular thing, and, and the ministry that he was called to influenced hundreds of thousands of people around the world, probably millions of people. And yet, even this, this very discouragement came uh, to bear heavily upon him. Because you can be reaching uh, a million or two million or seven million people, but in the context of seven billion, 
It can seem like uh, uh, what difference is, is any of this uh, making in the midst of so much need. And, and the, the fruit of spiritual service, and I think it's one of the real discouragements of, of spiritual service that we have to be aware of, is that the fruit of, of spiritual work today that we do is unseen for such a long period of time. Um, so many, many decades ago now, when I quit the phone company and uh, moved to Modesto to uh, pastor the, the church here, uh, there were a couple of things that really uh, almost knocked me out of the saddle very, very early on. And uh, one of them was tremendous discouragement, uh, great spiritual warfare. Another one uh, that occurred was a, uh, an immediate consciousness of how little I knew. I knew I didn't know much when I started driving uh, over here from Napa. I was three and a half years old in the Lord. So I was aware I didn't know much, but I didn't know how much I didn't know until I began to try to, to do this. The other thing that really discouraged me is that you would put in a whole day's work. I worked harder than I ever had, and I've always been a hard worker, but at the end of the day, there was nothing physical to show for it. And when I worked for the phone company, at the end of the day, there were poles in the ground, uh, there was cable in the air, cable had been spliced, something physical had happened in the world because I was alive. And it gave me a sense of accomplishment and a sense of kind of, of worth. I am, I'm carrying my weight in the big picture of the world. But with Christian service, so much is done today and you don't see the fruit for weeks or months or years and in some case, decades. And that's a, that's a discouraging thing for someone who wants to see fruit quicker than sometimes uh, that, that it happens. And, and so there's this long period of time where, and in our Christian service, there's no physical means by which to measure my uh, usefulness. No physical means, means by which to measure uh, my uh, effectiveness. And it was very, very discouraging. And, uh, and that's a mark of Christian service. Now, I, I want you to notice another key component of their discouragement uh, in, in that they compared what God had called them to do with what God had called Solomon to do. Uh, in other words, with what God had called other people to do. And in their eyes, in, this, in that sense, in their estimation, uh, based on their own human understanding, they esteemed that they were doing as nothing, as inconsequential, compared to what God had called Solomon to do and what he had, had accomplished. And, and we can understand how they might uh, think that. Again, Solomon's temple was built with unlimited resources. David uh, was able to uh, ransack, uh, spoil, you know, the entire part of that world in, in order to amass wealth for the building of the temple. And he handled it all, handed it all over to Solomon uh, for that purpose. Uh, Solomon's temple was built at a time uh, of revival. 
Uh, they were hardly in a revival at this time. And the further you move away from the last revival in, in a nation's history or in the world, then the, the more we succumb to this feeling. Solomon's temple was built in a, in a spiritual uh, revival. And, uh, and at a time in which Israel was at her peak in terms of power. And so uh, Solomon's temple, indescribably beautiful. Outwardly, the temple they were building didn't compare at all to Solomon's temple in terms of, of grandeur. But, but they forgot one very, very important thing in their comparison with Solomon's temple, and that is as beautiful as Solomon's temple was in its outward appearance, Ultimately, you might remember the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God departed from Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. It was the most beautiful building in that part of the world for many, many long years and decades, but his spirit wasn't there. And what makes a temple, what makes a gathering place for God's people in order to worship the Lord truly glorious and truly attractive is not the building, but that He graces those that come with the building with His presence and with His peace. And without those things, without God being a part of the service, without Him participating in our hearts, inhabiting our praises, giving life and application to His Word, leaving and feeling like I have been built up spiritually by being in that place, then a, a temple is worthless, no matter how beautiful it might be. And God is going to speak to them, in, in essence, and, and let them know, I know that it doesn't compare to Solomon's temple outwardly. But I am giving you the things that are priceless, that you can't buy for any amount of money, and you can't lure me into some kind of a spiritual environment by gold and cedar. This is something I give uh, to a place that is truly set apart for me, no matter how humble it might be. And again, the promise of His presence, and, and the promise uh, of, of His uh, peace. We're going to see in just a moment that God's answer to their discouragement under the, the weight of all of this is, uh, in essence, what, uh, of what difference is this work that we're doing? It can never compare to what, to what uh, Solomon did. And, and essentially, God is going to declare to them, well, Solomon's temple uh, uh, won't compare to the millennial temple. Uh, that, that's going to be built during the thousand-year reign of Christ uh, that was, is described as we saw in the latter chapters of, of Ezekiel, and yet Solomon built it as he was instructed. And so he, he, he warns them, no comparing. You are simply to do what I've called you to do regardless of what anybody else has or hasn't done concerning my work and, uh, or is or isn't doing uh, presently. Because this kind of comparison, they're comparing their work, their ministry to Solomon's work in his ministry, that kind of ca comparison is going to lead us into all kinds of conclusions about our effectiveness, about the importance of what it is that God has called us to do. It will lead us into very deep discouragement in, in our service 
and we have to be wise concerning this comparing ourselves among ourselves. And in Paul's perspective, the Apostle Paul, he had a lot to say about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, he wrote, For we dare not classify ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. And then here it is. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. It's never wise to, to compare in that way. The New Living Translation really catches the full force of it. Uh, it goes, oh, don't worry. Uh, we wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as these men who tell you how important they are. But they are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as the standard of measurement. How ignorant. And, uh, and so he uh, declares that to be an ignorant thing. It's a, it, there's a funny question that gets asked a lot of times um, in, when pastors gather for a pastor's conference. And uh, I, I always hope that this is going to ebb a little bit, and, and by the grace of God, I, I don't ask people uh, this question uh, myself, though I'm probably guilty of it uh, in the past. But to go to a pastor's conference, one of the questions that uh, you're very likely to be asked is, how big is your church? Um, there's a couple of things I don't like about that question. Number one, it's not my church. Not even remotely my church. It's the Lord's church. And, but the idea is that, and, and so often that's the sole question that is asked. And, and as if I can know something about that person based solely upon that answer. I don't know where they're serving the Lord. I don't know whether they're serving the Lord in Russia or the Ukraine or in Peru or in the Central Valley of California or the Bible Belt of the South. All of these things come into play. I can't know anything uh, about their mission field or where they are or even what God has called them uh, to, to do in, in terms of uh, the, the number of people that He's going to bring to a particular church, a small town, a large town, whatever it, it, it might be. It doesn't tell us anything at all. And so comparing ourselves among ourselves in Christian service isn't wise. And so Paul is telling us to refuse the temptation because if we compare ourselves among ourselves, we will be prone to do what it is that they're doing here, and that is to make very bad decisions. And the, and the biggest bad decision of all is to just simply quit serving the Lord as a result of uh, saying, look at what I'm doing, what difference does it make, look at how God is using him or, or uh, using her. Paul went even further in, in addressing this subject in writing his first letter to the church uh, at, at Corinth. And uh, the church was treating him very, very poorly and, uh, and, and judging him in just an awful, awful kind uh, of way. And he declared to them, and as he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he declared that not only did he not consider their judgment of him to be of any uh, essential consequence, but he said, I don't even judge myself. 
He said, the Lord will judge my ministry. We cannot, if the Apostle Paul could not assess his ministry and the effectiveness of his ministry, then how in the world are any of us going to be able to assess the effectiveness of the ministry that God has, has called us to? He said, no, the day will come where our praise will come from the Lord. Because none of us knows fully what it is that God has called us to do, what He intends to do, and one day we'll really find out about how faithful I've been to this calling. Or any of us have been faithful to God's calling. So you have a couple of different kind of personalities among, uh, among people and the danger of this comparison you, and this, judge, this judging that goes on. There's a certain kind of person uh, and a certain kind of personality, Christian, who will be driven out of the ministry. They will be discouraged out of their service to the Lord based upon the harsh judgments of other toward them. But there's another, on the other end of the spectrum, there's another person who will never be driven out by people, but they are their own worst enemy. They will self-criticize and self-judge themselves harsher than any person ever could, and they will discourage themselves out. And so Paul says, steer clear of all of it. Just be faithful to what God has called us to do. Leave the big picture uh, uh, to Him and, uh, and let Him have the final say of it uh, uh, one, one day. And so he gives the encouragement here uh, in verse 4. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, uh, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says, uh, uh, says the Lord, and work. And so he tells them to be strong, be strong, be strong, uh, and work. Get your eyes back on what I've called you to do and quit thinking so much. And quit comparing uh, uh, so much. And that's very, very good uh, counsel in, in a trial. You know, what difference is my service making in the light of the immensity of the need of the world? That's not our problem. That's God's problem. And if every Christian, if we just simply do what He's called us to do, then we will discover one day, probably in glory, that as each of us do what we're doing, that they're all intertwined together and, and together as a work of His Holy Spirit. It's all accomplishing exactly what He wants. But He's not going to tell me what He's doing with this person over here or over there or another church in town or whatever it, it, it might be. All I have to do is concentrate on what He's called me to do. And, and so it is really with, uh, uh, with all of us. And then as we do that, then collectively uh, there will be a, 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 a huge difference and it will be the difference that God wants to make. He tells them there, for I am with you, my spirit remains uh, among you. And so God would uh, be faithful to them uh, as He says, for I am with you at the end of verse 4, according to the word that I covenanted with you uh, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And so He says, I'm going to be as faithful to you uh, and, and what I, I've called you to do in the building of this temple uh, even though it looks like nothing in your eyes, I'm going to be as faithful to you as ever I was to Moses. 
when I brought the children of Israel out of Egypt by means of those ten, uh, uh, ten plagues. And so, he, he promises His presence. His active, favorable presence is always the guarantee uh, of, of uh, success. And, and, uh, and that's how they would have, would have uh, understood that. And he closes this little portion here with a call, don't uh, be afraid. And, and so he wants our ministry, our service to be one in which not only do we continue to serve him, but we do so without fear. God hasn't called us to do the thing that he's called us to do so that we live in fear or to make our life more miserable. But our Christian service is to be one that brings joy, it brings satisfaction, it brings fulfillment uh, to our lives. It's a privilege. It's an awesome thing. It gives eternal weight and consequence to, to our lives. And, uh, and so that's the attitude that he wants us, uh, our Christian service, to, uh, to be marked by. And, and so it doesn't really matter what we think about what God has called us to, whether we think it's worth the time or the effort, all that matters is what God uh, thinks uh, of it. And God uh, would never waste a minute of our life. I always think about in, in, in the terms of His uh, feeding uh, the thousands with the, the five loaves and the two fish. And uh, if it was me, you know, and you can just multiply the fish and the bread, it'd be like you get done everybody's stuff, just leave it there for the birds and, and let's go on our way. No, he collected all of it. He had his disciples collect everything. Nothing was to be wasted. And, and, I, and I think to myself, if he is not going to allow the end result of a miracle that he can do without any effort, then He's certainly not going to waste our lives and our calling as we spend our lives in what it is that He's called us to do. People look at my life and they think I've made, that knew me way back when, and they think I've wasted my life becoming a pastor and spending my life doing what it is that I'm, I'm doing. And, uh, but He never wastes anything. And people, look, I'm sure, quite look at you and your family and beyond. What a tragedy that they became a Christian and, and how they, they spend their life. I mean, it, uh, what they could have done or what they, all the things that they're missing out on. And they don't, they don't understand that this is the joy uh, of, uh, of, of our lives. And so the importance of not allowing this kind of discouragement to knock us out of our Christian service and, and instead to be strong, uh, to work and to be strong and work confident in the fact that it is uh, what we're doing is a blessing to him and uh, it and he makes it effectual for his purposes his eternal uh, purposes and then Haggai makes a proclamation here in verse 6 concerning the uh, the future glory of the temple. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more uh, it is a little while and I will shake uh, heaven and earth uh, and uh, the sea and the dry land. And so the shaking probably referring to Moses receiving the law from the Lord at Mount Sinai, all of the shaking that went on and, and everything. And uh, God says, and I will shake all nations and probably speaking of uh, the great uh, tribulation uh, period, 
and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. The desire of all nations, is a, that is a title that is given to Jesus Christ. So it's talking here about uh, the fact that there is going to be uh, this shaking, the great tribulation, and, and then Jesus coming at His second coming, and, and that He will be recognized as the desire of all nations. It, it's an interesting thing, the world that we live in, it's been true of, uh, all through history, all of the things that nations want, that nations desire, nations think that they need or that the world needs, that all of them will be fulfilled in the desire of the nations. They will be fulfilled in Christ. Uh, he is the answer to all of those things. Those desires that they have is actually a desire for the return of Jesus Christ to establish His kingdom in the world. And when all of these problems of the nations will, will then, uh, will then uh, go, uh, go away. And the Lord says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. He says, I, I, listen, I saw Solomon's temple and, and I had to vacate it. I, the fact that you can't add silver and gold to this temple that I've got you building, it doesn't matter to me. Silver and gold is nothing to me. What matters is that the people that would be inside of this temple and around this temple would worship me in spirit and in truth, not in hypocrisy. Not in the way that they did in Solomon's time where they came in their hypocrisy with all of their idols at home and then another thing here at the the temple and yet everything had gold. He said the gold means nothing. If the gold is all there, the silver is all there and I don't have the hearts of the people, how is that supposed to mean anything to me? And he's just letting them know. What matters is the hearts of the people that will come here uh, to worship. That's what's important, to worship God, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and, and in truth. That's what he values. And then Haggai says, the glory of this latter temple will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The context that he's talking about here in the latter temple is not the temple that they're building. So he talks about great tribulation. He talks about the second coming of Christ. Now he's talking about the temple that will be built uh, during the kingdom age. And so he tells them, again, Solomon's temple isn't even going to compare with the temple that is going to be built during the tribulation uh, period. Not just, uh, I mean, in the kingdom age. Not just because it'll be beautiful as it's described there in Ezekiel, but because Jesus Himself will be, will be present related to uh, the worship of Him and the worship of God the Father uh, that, uh, that is there. And so, uh, if Solomon knew what he was doing, if he knew how to compare it with uh, the, the kingdom age temple, he'd been as discouraged as you are. So just do what I've called you to do. Now, I, I think one of the things that is important here in, in what he, he's telling us is, and I think it's a tremendous encouragement to us in our service, is that what God has called us to do Uh, no matter how big or small we might esteem it, or how it's esteemed uh, by others, even Christians who can be the harshest uh, critics sometimes. 
But when we do what we do, we are playing our part in a plan that culminates in Jesus' second coming, uh, the establishment of the kingdom age, the building of that temple, all of that ultimately giving way to a new heaven and a new earth. So no matter what it looks like to us, our little thing that we're doing is this is playing a part in what God is doing that leads there. And, and that gives great meaning and significance to what it is uh, uh, that, uh, that, we're, that, uh, that we're doing. And, and I think it, it's, it's important. And uh, uh, it certainly is an encouragement uh, to me that this is, this is not just me in, in 2022 doing something in Modesto, California, or, you know, for all of us, and, and it's just this self-contained little thing. No, it is attached, it is tentacled to uh, a plan that culminates in Jesus' reigning upon the earth and, and even one day in a new heaven uh, and, and a, new, uh, a new earth. And then he moves on in uh, verse uh, 10, and he heads into his third prophecy uh, concerning uh, confronting them with their disobedience and the uncleanness that, uh, that uh, uh, was resulting. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came uh, by Haggai the prophet uh, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priests, go to the priests and ask for a judgment based upon the law of Moses. Ask the priests concerning the law, saying, if one carries holy meat, meat that has been dedicated to God in the temple, and, and a priest is carrying it in his gar garment, his apron, and then with the edge he touches uh, bread or stew or wine or oil or any food that is unclean food, uh, will that unclean food become holy as a result of touching uh, the, the, the sacrifice that's been made to God? And then the priest answered correctly, based upon the law of Moses. The answer was uh, no. And Haggai said, uh, if one who is unclean because they've touched a dead body uh, touches any of these things, will it be unclean? And so they, uh, the priest uh, checked with the law. They answered correctly uh, that it, uh, it shall be unclean. These things would be made unclean by someone who was ceremonially unclean by virtue uh, of touching a, 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 a dead body. And, and so the point that he, he's, he's making here in, in all of this is that physically and spiritually, uh, uh, health is not transmissible while, while disease is. And so uh, holiness does not pass on to other things uh, this, uh, this way. And so uh, holiness cannot impart holiness to what is unclean, what is unholy or unclean can defile what is holy or clean. And the point that he's making here is that their uncleanness or their unholiness uh, in, in the form of their disobedience, uh, their failure to rebuild the temple, that, that made their worship and made their offerings to God uh, unholy. And, and so, and given in the context of rebuilding the temple, this is what he, he's talking about here. And everything that they would offer at that 
at the temple. Temple wasn't built, but they were offering sacrifices there. In the area of the temple, he was saying that uh, all of these things would be unclean if they continued to deliberately fail to do what he had called them to do in building uh, uh, the temple. And, uh, and, and having upside-down priorities where they were engaged in everything else, but not really giving God's work a, a, a priority. And then Haggai answered and said, uh, as he applies it here uh, to them, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is uh, every work of their hands, and what they offer there is uh, unclean. And so he says, build this temple, finish this temple, through the excuses, through the discouragement, uh, because otherwise, if you don't and you continue to disobey me on this, uh, then nothing, no worship of me is, is going to be clean uh, or be holy. In verse 15, he goes on and he talks about how he would bless them if they would obey. And now consider, uh, carefully consider from this day forward, from before uh, stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. So he says, now mark on your calendar. Uh, put a mark on it. You're starting to lay the stones on this foundation for building uh, the temple. And, and mark that day and since those days, when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, but there were ten, when one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all of the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. So just mark on the calendar, you commit now to making me and my work a priority, and, and, and you'll notice that in the dates going backwards, it was want, it was, uh, it was blight, it was hunger, it was lack, that was your life. And now watch from this very day forward, everything is going to change. Consider now, uh, from this day forward, from the 24th day uh, of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's uh, temple was laid, and consider it. And here's what's going to happen. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree uh, ha have not yielded fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. This is, a, again, a tremendous encouragement. They have neglected God's service. They've neglected His call upon their life. And God said, if you'll just repent make this a priority, return to this in your life, then uh, you will watch and, and it will be discernible. It will be noticeable. I will begin to bless you going forward with my blessings in a way that you will recognize that the life that comes out of a life of Christian service is far superior to the one that you were uh, in the middle of when I had to kind of judge you and chasten you in order to uh, get your attention. And what it speaks to us is that if we have neglected our Christian service, and, I, and, I, and I, as I mentioned last time when we talked about this, I'm not talking about being a pastor or being, a, you know, a worship leader or being whatever we think is the ministry. Whatever God has called any of us to, and we know this is how God has called me to spend my life as best as I can hear Him. I have no interest 
in guilting anyone into doing more, no interest in getting people to encumber themselves with, with man-made tasks under the, the weight of guilt or condemnation. Uh, but but if, if we recognize, no, I have neglected even a concern for Christian service or a, a neglect of what it is that He's called me to, that in 24 hours it can change that I can return to that area of service, begin to, to operate in that, be faithful to it, and then everything in my life uh, will change. God will, will uh, uh, return the fullness of His blessing uh, upon our, our lives. And then His final um, uh, message, His fourth message, uh, he speaks to Haggai about the ultimate overthrow uh, of uh, the Gentile kingdoms of the world uh, that are, will then be replaced with an unshakable kingdom, Jesus' uh, kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So it's not now Joshua and the people. This is just for Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel was the leader, he was the governor, and maybe he just needed some special um, encouragement, and God's going to give it to him. And so this is what you're to say to Zerubbabel, I will shake heaven and earth, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I will destroy the strength of Gentile nations, I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them, the horses and their riders shall come down, uh, everyone by the sword of his uh, his brother. And so speaking of the final overthrow of, of Gentile uh, power, uh, world power, overthrow of, uh, of the Gentile kingdoms uh, of the world, it seems as if here uh, that uh, the, the Haggai and the Holy Spirit speaking through him goes back then to uh, earlier into the chapter uh, to verses uh, 6, 7, 8, and 9, talking about uh, the kingdom, uh, kingdom age returns and, and f uh, fills in a little bit more uh, related to that. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, uh, in, in, in this time, uh, of uh, the, the establishment of, of the kingdom age, I, uh, the son of Shetiel, uh, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says uh, the Lord of hosts. And so uh, this is a prophecy of the restoration of the Davidic kingdom, uh, clearly in, in verses 21 and 22, in conjunction with especially verses 6 and 7, uh, referring to the great tribulation leading up to Jesus' second coming and so forth, um, that, uh, and the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so it may, it may refer to the fact that Zerubbabel is going to have some kind of a special place uh, during the kingdom age. Uh, some people hold that view. There are others that, uh, that believe, and, and probably most people, uh, Bible students believe, that here he's a type of Jesus Christ, a type of, of the Messiah. So Zerubbabel, he was in the Davidic line uh, that, uh, that, uh, that promised to produce the, uh, the future Messiah. He was of the, the bloodline of both Joseph uh, and, and Mary, Mary being the most significant of, of the bloodlines. Uh, and so, because uh, my servant is a reference uh, often to the Messiah in the Old Testament, that's why some people believe. You'll still be saved if you don't, uh, 
uh, understand verse 23. Uh, or uh, you have a third opinion uh, related to it. When he talks about the signet ring here, signet ring was, you know, you see these old movies and they've got the big ring and it's got his seal on it and, and he would uh, he, seal with wax the documents of the king and, and the king would uh, wear the ring and, and or he, on his finger, wear it in a cord around his neck and it represented his, uh, his uh, authority. It was equivalent of of a signature in the ancient world when many people didn't, uh, didn't write. And so in the near fulfillment of what's being spoken of here is that uh, the fact that Zerubbabel would be God's signature, he would be God's authoritative leader in this time of the rebuilding of, uh, of uh, that temple, uh, the far and ultimate fulfillment it speaks of, uh, the, the royal authority of, of Jesus during the kingdom age. So we close the book of, of Haggai this evening and uh, leaving it uh, to, and, and wanting to leave it being aware of the two attitudes or the two excuses that will endeavor to keep us from ever starting to serve the Lord and will always be a threat to continuing our service uh, to the Lord. Uh, the first one is the excuse of now is not the time. Procrastination and wrong priorities. Again, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these other things will be added uh, unto you. In terms of procrastination, you might remember when Jesus spoke uh, to the disciples uh, following speaking to the woman at the well. And He said to His disciples, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white with harvest. Don't wait for a revival someday. Don't wait for some kind of whatever. Uh, get busy with with God's work right now. And then the second attitude, what difference does my uh, Christian service make in, in the grand uh, scheme of things? Nobody would notice if I started or I stopped. And, and, uh, uh, and, and here Haggai saying, that's not your problem. And, and we remain faithful to our calling. God will be faithful to make what we do significant for, for His eternal uh, purposes and he'll reward it one day with a well done thou good and faithful servant enter into the joy uh, of the Lord and then finally just to realize that if I've fallen and pray to this um, neglected Christian service and uh, at one time that was a part of my life the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance the Bible says and there needs to be uh, a 180 on that and a turning back to uh, putting your gift and your calling and play in the world to realize that that can happen in an instant and that God will uh, bless you, bless us uh, as we uh, do that. So wonderful, wonderful message of, uh, of this uh, human alarm clock called Haggai. Did he step all over your toes? Of course he did, and mine too. Um, but that's what, uh, that's what alarm clocks do. But what would we do without alarm clocks? Uh, we'd be late for everything and uh, get fired. So if the worship team would come forward right now, we'll just close up with a, a little bit of worship as we give consideration to all of this and, and the grace of God that is represented in all of this re related to uh, Haggai.